of justice, burning away evil in its place, yielding what is good, what is life-giving, what is flourishing. In chapter 10, verse 22, we'll read that God in His wrath says, destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. God's wrath overflows with righteousness, not just that it establishes justice through retribution, through punishment of what is evil, but it also creates righteousness where there was none before. God's judgment corrects and restores what has been corrupted by evil. It brings life where there was death, vitality and strength to what darkness had weakened and distorted. It's true what you read in verse 19, the wrath of the Lord of hosts has scorched the land. But I want you to know it's a controlled burn designed not to torch at all, but to produce new growth, vital green growth. God's judgment overflows with righteousness because He is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. Holiness with us will burn away the evil within us. Not in hatred, not in brutality, but in compassionate commitment to us and to His holy name. God's judgment, His righteousness overflows ultimately in Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, to produce full justice and full restoration. So let's take a look at God's judgment. First, God's judgment is just. As we saw in our passage, it stands against human hubris and arrogance. He says in chapter 9, verse 9, because Israel says and is arrogant in their heart, haughty in their eyes. What's he talking about? He's talking about destruction has hit them. The judgment of Philistia and Assyria has come against them, and they didn't learn anything. They didn't humble themselves and think, huh, I wonder if we should change our ways. They just said, we will rebuild. It's not unlike what we've done. I remember after 9-11 happened, I remember the, there was a lot of very good things said, but I also remember the chorus of, we will not let the terrorists change us. America, keep on consuming. Do you remember that? That was the primary tone. Keep consuming, keep buying, don't let the terrorists ruin our economy. And it was like, man, that's the wrong lesson to learn from this. Just stay the same. We don't change because of the terrorists, but because of God. Winston Churchill drew the same conclusion after World War II. He wrote a multi-volume reflection on the war and the aftermath. And in his last volume, he sort of summarizes the theme with these words. He says, How the great democracies triumphed, and so were able to resume the follies which had nearly cost them their life. We just went right back to the way we were living before. That's hubris, arrogance, an unwillingness to learn from the heavy hand of the Lord's discipline. 
corporately and individually. It is also against spiritual corruption. Their leaders, the tail, these false prophets are leading the people astray. They're diffusing God's wrath. Oh, no, God, is, there's no judgment. In a little while, God will restore all things. Their vision of God is sort of a toothless grandfather who just wants to bless, who isn't concerned with their evil, isn't concerned with their corruption, isn't concerned to redeem them in their souls from their brokenness. But just to pat them on the head, they're there. Against social corruption, the image of verses 18 through 21 is terrifying. It's the image of a society collapsing and consuming itself, devouring one another. Like Paul warned the Galatians, be careful if you bite and devour each other lest you consume one another. That's what Israel was doing. They were chewing one another up, spitting each other out. That's wrath working itself out in the dynamic of sin itself. Listen, when our sin leads to self-destruction, that isn't God lighting a match. The fire, the flint, is in our own sin. And it is the wrath of God working out in our own rebellion. It is how rebellion works. It self-destructs. And so you have a nation collapsing in self-destruction. And for all this, the hand of the Lord is not turned away. And then finally, 10, 1 through 4, these unjust laws. The laws of northern Israel and their princes, their rulers, was unjust. They, they treated the poor as an opportunity to gain more wealth, taking, taking advantage of the widow and the orphan. God says, what will you do on the day of punishment? Where will you run? Which leads us to the second point. God's judgment is inexorable. It cannot be escaped. We can't run away from it. Did you notice the fourfold repetition of the refrain? The fourfold repetition is, for all this, the anger of the Lord continues. His hand is held out still. God's judgment continues inexorably to press into northern Israel, to address the cancer of her corruption with the surgical precision of 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 a doctor who doesn't just hate cancer, he loves the patient far too much to let the cancer destroy her. And so that blade is brutal. It just keeps digging. It keeps digging. It keeps digging. It's going to get out all the cancer. And it ends with the Assyrian army taking prisoners, Israel's princes, or they're being executed verse 4 of chapter 10. There's no negotiating with divine wrath. There's no compromising with judgment. There's no cutting of deals with the Almighty. There's only one thing you can do in the face of an angry God, and that is to turn to Him. That's what He says in 9.13, right? Verse 13, He says, The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. They did not turn back to him, but ran away. They ran in their sin and their rebellion. But here's the experience of God's anger. As we experience God's judgment, and we turn to him for mercy, 
we find every time mercy. A God who is quick to forgive, slow to anger, patient, gracious, kind. His anger is not destructive. He's angry because he's righteous and, and because he loves you. You know what we call a parent who doesn't discipline a child, who doesn't correct them? A bad parent who does not love their child well. C.S. Lewis said, the opposite of love isn't hatred, it's indifference. God is not indifferent toward our sin. And so his anger is the sign of his concern for us, as well as his own name, because he is Emmanuel, the God with us. And he will vindicate his name. He will not allow us to continue to grossly misrepresent his character as image bearers. He will pull out that cancer. He will heal. And that determination, that zeal to heal is what we call wrath. It's his judgment. And when we turn to him for mercy, we will find restoration. Thirdly, God's judgment is impartial. God is no respecter of persons, as the King James puts it. You can see on the screen, chapters 10, 5, and following, he says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, is my fury. In other words, Assyria is my means of judging Israel. Against a godless nation I will send him. Who's the godless nation? God's own people. He calls a godless nation. And against the people of my wrath, there's a name for the people of God. The people of my wrath, I command him to take the spoil, seize the plunder, mahar, shalal, hashbaz, to tread them down like the mire of the streets, but he does not so intend. The Assyrian king is not, he's not consciously acting out the justice of God. No, what's he doing? He says, instead, his intention is to destroy, to cut off nations, not a few. His intention is self-aggrandizement, empire building. He's purely in it for himself. He has no knowledge of God. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? They're all the same, and I'll conquer all of them. As my hand has reached to the kingdom of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Notice the implications. The other gods I've conquered are weaker than Yahweh. Surely I will conquer them easily. I will, not do, will I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I've done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion on Jerusalem, you know what that means. When he has finished disciplining Judah through the Assyrians. He doesn't destroy Judah, remember, but they are severely disciplined. He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes, which sounds just like Chapter 9, verse 19, about northern Israel. Their arrogant hearts and boastful speech. God is not impartial. He will judge his people. He's not, to paraphrase the apostle Peter, don't say, because God is my father, he can wink at my sin. Don't worry about it, kiddo. You're with dad. Right? That's not how it works. God is impartial. He judges the sins of his people. In fact, Peter says, the judgment of God begins with the household of God. He will judge. He does judge his people impartially. 
because he's just, he's fair, he's righteous, he's good, he's not corrupt, he doesn't play favorites. But on the other hand, Assyria, if Assyria is an axe, and that's how he describes it in verse 15, Assyria is my axe, look at this, this is remarkable language, therefore the Lord of hosts Shall the axe rather say over? Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Do you see the picture of it? An axe as he's swinging it, going, "I'm the best. I'm the greatest." You know, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield the one who lifts it. Can you imagine a rod lifting a man, or as a staff should lift him who was not wood? The absurdity of the king of Assyria boasting over the God of Israel. He is arrogant. And his arrogance must be dealt with because Emmanuel, God is with us and among us. His glory fills the earth. And man's self-aggrandizement cannot stand against the glory of God. There's a 9th century stone tablet that was found that contains the words of a 9th century Assyrian emperor. Here's what he says. In these days when the command of the great gods, at the command of the great gods, my lordly sovereignty has manifested itself, going forth to plunder the goods of all the lands. I am royal. I am lordly. I am mighty. I am honored. I am exalted. I am glorified. I am powerful. I am all-powerful. I am brilliant. I am lion-brave. I am manly. I am supreme. I am noble. Okay. (laughs) Remember the poem, Ozymandias? No one knows who you are now, bro. (laughs) Never heard of you until we dug up that stone. Right? God will humble the proud He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. To oppose Almighty God, that's something. That's something. He is also violent. Remember, his intention is not to execute justice. It's in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. His heart is for his own glory. And this is the strange mystery of God's sovereignty, that God can use even evil to accomplish what's good. It is a strange, strange thing. In fact, Isaiah calls it the strange work of God that he uses. The Assyrians could be likened to Nazi Germany. Can you imagine being in in North America in the 20th century and God says, America's corrupt and violent. We're like, yes. It's like, I'm going to use the Nazis to discipline them and correct them. What? Right? That kind of horrific response was precisely Israel's response. How could you use the Assyrians? They're notoriously brutal, cruel, unjust, wicked. And God says, don't worry, I will punish them as well. They will be held accountable for all of their sin. The most wonderful and terrifying place that we see this paradox is the cross itself. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by evil men, a corrupt leadership in Israel that knowingly condemned an innocent man and a corrupt Roman government that knowingly executed him without any legitimate charge. This wasn't just a particular crime against one innocent man. This was their creator. 
It is the most evil act in human history that we would murder God when he draws near to us. That's what we did. And in the greatest crime of history is precisely the greatest act of redemption in history. This is the mystery of divine sovereignty. But I have to move on. Um, against a godless nation, I will send him against the people of my wrath to take spoil, seize, plunder. And I mentioned Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. That theme is repeated here. The judgment is coming and it is swift. Do you guys remember Shawshank Redemption? It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Well, Andy Dufresne's working for the warden, and the warden is perfect picture of Israel here. He's very religious and extremely corrupt, evil, violent man. And he covers it with this veneer of religiosity, not unlike God's people in the ninth century, eighth century. And he has a, a safe in his office where he keeps his ill-begotten gains. Ill-gotten, not ill-begotten. Uh, and on there is a plaque that says, do you remember it? It's, it's like pseudo-scripture. It sounds like the Bible. It's not. But it says this uh, on the, the plaque. His judgment cometh, and that right soon. Do you remember that? And, 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 it, and it does. It does. The end of the film, I mean, if you haven't seen it by now, you know, you've had plenty of time. But <laughs> <laughs> at the end, through Andy Dufresne, he is captured. And as the sirens are pulling up and the police officers are rushing to his office, the camera pans back on that plaque. His judgment cometh, and that right soon. The warden had plenty of opportunities to repent, plenty of opportunities. But when judgment comes, man, it comes all of a sudden. That's what Jesus said. Even though there's plenty of warning, he says, it's going to come like a thief in the night when you least expect. It comes. And that's the terrifying picture we see here in chapter 10, verse 28, following. I'll just summarize this because our time's running out. He, uh, this is speaking of the Assyrian armies flooding into Judah from the north. That's the picture being painted here. He comes to Aeth. He has passed through all these names, by the way. They're all these little cities north of Israel, and they're getting closer and closer to Israel's, to, sorry, to Jerusalem. They're getting closer and closer to the gates of Jerusalem. So notice this language. He's come to Aeth. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They've already crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul, Saul has already fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lashah, O poor Anathoth. Madmanah is in flight. The inhabitants of Gebim flee for safety. This very day, he will halt at Nob, just a couple miles outside Jerusalem. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. It is coming right quickly, rushing, overflowing is the image that was used in part one of the book of Emmanuel, like a floodwaters reaching up to the neck of Emmanuel. But then an even quicker, sudden shift happens. Verse 30, 33, Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, the lofty brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. Ironically, the axe gets axed. 
and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. As he says in chapter 10, verse 18, look at that with me. And this is speaking to the king of Assyria. The glory of his forest and his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few a child can count them. The forest will be reduced to what you can count on your hands. God will thin out the numbers of Assyria. And what's left is a felled forest. Pick, can you picture it? Everything's fallen. Smoke smolders and rises from this burnout forest. But Isaiah saw in his vision in chapter 6, from the burnt stump, a green stem will grow. A holy seed. Chapter 4, verse 2. The branch of the Lord in the midst of that destruction will branch out that day and it will be beautiful. God's judgment is fulfilled in Emmanuel. Look at chapter 11, verse 1 with me. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The, root of, root, the, the shoot of Jesse is, Jesse is David's dad. This is royal language. This is clearly the Christ. The royal son talked about in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, the son of David. It's interesting that he sprouts up from the scorched earth. Jesus took upon himself the consequences of our sin. He was born in the burnt-out world that our sin produced. He endured the consequences, the just consequences of our rebellion. In his poverty and growing up with a dead dynasty, no throne for David in his day, Ahaz ruined that. And yet, among the smoke and the disaster he grows, most remarkably, as Isaiah goes on to predict for us, this mysterious one will not just grow up amidst the destruction and devastation of our sin. He will take upon himself the wrath of God. He will drink of the cup. Or as Isaiah puts it, for the sins of my people, he will be crushed. For the transgressions of many, he will be pierced through. God endures his own wrath to restore us. It goes on. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and fear. He will, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. In other words, he's not a king who's going to be uh, particularly Machiavellian or clever politically. He's going to be very wise in the fear of the Lord. He, his greatness is moral and spiritual greatness. That's what will make him great. It goes on. With righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. In other words, unlike Israel's princes and Judah's, he will protect the orphan and the widow. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will kill the wicked. He will punish the victimizers, even as he vindicates the victims. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. That language of belt is preparedness. We could say it this way. The Messiah is eager and excited 
about social justice. He's, he's ready to go. Like, let's act. Let's go. Let's right what's wrong. He's zealous. And if, he, if social justice rubs you wrong, just replace it with righteousness. Social righteousness. He loves it. He's all about it. And we too, as his people, should be eager to do what's good, to seek the care of the disadvantaged and the vulnerable today. And the reality is we do, many of us. You look at Christian nonprofit organizations that are caring for the poor, for orphans, for women that are being trafficked. By and large, what you'll find is they are, their ranks are filled with Christians, if not their leadership, and typically the leadership as well. Why is that? Because we're being conformed to the image of Jesus. We're becoming zealous for good works, for righteousness, for justice. So we seek out the care of our neighbors. There's some great literature, by the, by the way, in the foyer about how we can care for some vulnerable women in our midst, in our, in our city, both through trafficking and women finding themselves in a crisis pregnancy, and I encourage you to check that out. Not only that, he goes on, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with a young goat, the calf with the lion, a child will lead them, he goes on, a nursing child will play over the hole of a cobra. What's he saying here? Well, remember what he described Israel as. They were devouring one another. All of creation is disordered and chaotic and violent, but in restored creation that Emmanuel brings, no longer will we act beastly toward each other. In fact, even the beasts will not act beastly toward one another. There will be peace, shalom. He goes on, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that beautiful? That doesn't just mean people will know about God everywhere. They will know and enjoy Him the whole world over. This is where we're heading. This is why our, our preaching the gospel in word and in deed is not fruitless. It's not in vain. It is the future. It's where history is going. This is where it's going. Global knowledge and enjoyment of God. In that day, the root of Jesse. Wait, I thought he was the shoot of Jesse. How can he be the shoot and the root? How can he be the foundation and the superstructure? How can he be the fruit of, but, the, but also the ground of? This is no mere man. This is no simple child of David's line. The root of Jesse shall stand as a signal, as a banner to all peoples, and he gathers all peoples to himself. All the nations come, Isaiah chapter 2, all the nations will come to Mount Zion, not because the law of Moses stands at the center. What stands at the center? Emmanuel. And they come to him. Emmanuel rises humbly from the ruins, from a burnt-out Israel, destroyed dynasty. And he rules by wisdom and spiritual insight, not by human ingenuity or self-aggrandizing power or manipulation. Emmanuel establishes justice for the oppressed and judgment against the oppressor. Emmanuel brings shalom among men, women, children, and the whole created order. Emmanuel will attract all nations to himself and through that will restore all of Israel. Here's the good news. Emmanuel has come. And he now invites you to come. I'm going to read this again. Read it with me. Chapter 11, 
Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, the nations, of him shall the nations inquire. Not beautiful. Every nation, tribe, and tongue will be moved by him, curious about him, want to learn from him. And his resting place shall be glorious. That burned out forest will be a beautiful palace. That destroyed, broken down garden will be Eden. And here's what Jesus says to all of us here this morning. All of us, without exception, wherever you stand in relationship to Jesus, here's his word to us all. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He has already done the heavy lifting at Calvary. And now he offers you rest. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the rest of Jesus. Help us enter into that rest even now as we sing.